Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and what we're talking about this time round is Top Gun Maverick. Here we go. In three, two, one. Which means we're going to talk about the history of flight, we're going to talk a lot about 80s movies, and the only bona fide global superstar still in existence today. So, a lot of fun on this one. And I've got to say, the movie... It, do you know what? No, I'm, I'm jumping ahead. Let's... Go back, 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 back in time. To the early 1980s, where a young actor called Thomas Malpather III decided to change his name to Tom Cruise and was starting to get some traction in movies. There are a few very early 80s films with very young Tom Cruise where he's a bit player. And even in these very small roles, he stands out. I lit a whole pile of newspapers. You ever try to light a whole pile of wet newspapers? Obviously, there's a little part of you going, look who is he going to turn into? But also, at the same time, he's good. Genuinely good. And then the thing that really broke him was 1983's Risky Business, which we're not going to go into here because it's got a very adult premise, but it was a huge hit and not a lot of money and made Tom Cruise a bit of a heartthrob. Doesn't anyone want to accomplish anything, or do we just want to make money? Make money. Make a lot of money. Then, throughout the rest of the 80s, he tended to be the cocky young guy who was good at the thing. It might have been Days of Thunder, it might have been Cocktail, or the one that kind of kicked it all off was 1986's Top Gun. You're everyone's problem. That's because every time you go up in the air, you're unsafe. I don't like you because you're dangerous. That's right. Nice. Man, I am dangerous. So, if you have been living under a rock, or, I don't know, don't like pop culture, you have to be aware of 1986's Top Gun, and probably are at least aware of the new one, Top Gun Maverick. Top Gun 2, basically, is what it is. This is a shout-out, by the way, to, to Mike Hibbert. Hello, Mike. Hi. We were talking on Twitter. We liaised with each other. He's a good supporter of the podcast. Thank you very much. Loves his D&D. Likes a bit of Warhammer as well. So thank you, Mike. Now you did 
Thomas' attitude is one of lasting gratitude. And he's sort of really fallen in love with the podcast and sort of shared it with all his friends and crew. Hi, everybody. And again, Mike, thanks very much. But he, he basically, he challenged me. He, he basically double dared me to do one on connecting Top Gun to Flight, the history of flight, which, yeah, why not? I was a little bit rushed. I've been in the middle of doing other podcasts, so they've all been shoved to one side because let's get this one out while the movie's still in the cinemas and hopefully you can go and see it. So let's first of all talk about the United States Navy Strike Fighter Tactics Instructor Program, which is a real thing that has always had the nickname Top Gun. And what this is about is, and again, look, I, I'm sort of going to have to cruise into a little bit of the history here because you have to explain why Top Gun exists. So by World War II, there were mass amounts of aircraft from both sides flying over the Pacific and over Europe, fighting each other, the dogfights, as we all know them as. And American pilots were pretty good at that. And again, in Korea, when we're moving into the jet era proper, again, the Americans did well in the skies of above Korea. But then we get to the Vietnam War, where there is less dogfighting, and the Americans are now far more dependent on missiles, homing missiles. And also there's an awful lot of ground-to-air defense systems involving what we all know about the ACAC guns, the anti-aircraft guns blasting away. Very World War II, that. Pretty much in the Cold War era onwards, it's now ground-to-air missiles firing up. And Americans were taking casualties that way. So in 1969, it was decided that basically American pilots could fly well but had lost the art of dogfighting and also this kind of maneuverability. In essence, what had become standard procedure, if you like, was to fly in a straight line, lock onto whatever you need to, using infrared or whatever, fire the missile, and then just get out the area. And we can do better than that. So because of that, you get the United States Navy Strike Fighter Tactics Instructor Program to vastly improve the air combat abilities of these pilots. Hence why it's called Top Gun, because you're the, the best dogfighter, basically. I guess you could call it Top Dog as well. That would be the other appropriate nickname for the institution. And it's been running since 69, still exists. It's a real thing. And that's what you get in Top Gun. I got to give you your dream shot. I'm going to send you up against the best. You two characters are going to Top Gun. The actual place Top Gun has a love-hate relationship with the movie Top Gun. It was a monster hit in 1986. It was rated 15 in the UK. What does that mean? That means that you have, you have to be 15 or older to see the movie. Why? Because of adult scenes, which nowadays when I watch it, it's like, there's some very tonguey kissing in sort of silhouette, but there's really nothing there that, that could be considered sort of super rude, certainly not by modern standards. It would definitely be a 12 by modern standards. I was not old enough to see it in the cinema. I saw it on TV a few years later, and I, I enjoyed it. Even on TV, I, you know, I got the excitement of it. It is a very razzmatazz, hoorah, American film, which is slightly ironic because it's directed by Tony Scott, a Brit, brother of Ridley Scott. Tony Scott has done other amazing movies. He's perhaps a bit more commercial, a bit like louder and sort of more kinetic than his brother Ridley. But it could be something like Crimson Tide, for example, or Man on Fire, an excellent sort of revenge thriller starring Denzel Washington. 
So he's made some really good movies, but sadly he committed suicide about 10 years ago. Nobody's quite sure why. There are lots of rumors went round. Obviously very, very sad. And Hollywood lost a truly great Hollywood director. So with regrets, Tony Scott was not going to be able to direct the sequel. But it was such a hit in 86. And it was so like, look, at, we're going to glamorize fighter pilot training and aircraft carriers and things like that, that literally the U.S. Air Force and U.S. Navy had recruitment booths at some cinemas in America. Because I guarantee if you're like a 20-year-old guy and you sort of see how good they look in the whites and, you know, you see the exciting action that they do and you see the babes that they get, and then outside you've got somebody in a uniform going, do you want to be Top Gun? The answer is yes, where do I sign up? And then you realize that you don't have 2020 eyesight or whatever, and you're now air crew, which is incredibly important. You know, these extremely expensive machines need excellent top-of-the-top-class and constant maintenance so that they can do all the aerial maneuvers in these aircraft. But yeah, that's not quite as sexy, basically, with a wrench getting covered in oil. So it literally was turned into, in essence, a recruitment program for U.S. services. So in that respect, U.S. armed forces loved Top Gun. But the actual place itself didn't because people were turning up going, yeah, you know, I want to do this. No one do that. And I want to be a rebel. I want to be a maverick. And in essence, you're basically fined if you start using quotes from the movie. You know, if you're flying around and going, I feel the need, I feel the need for speed, you will get fined. I feel the need, the need for speed. And also, I've seen a number of videos online by, basically, there are military lawyers and solicitors. There are martial law and, you know, a court martial. In other words, a military court. We tend to associate that with being shot. You know, that's, that's a very extreme form of justice. Sometimes you're just dismissed from the services. Sometimes you're perhaps dropped in rank. You know, you're forced to basically peel potatoes for three months. And in the case of a flyer, you might be sort of stopped from flying. You might be grounded for whatever reason. So, there, you know, lots of court cases. There isn't a jury. It's more a case of like a, a bunch of officers legally trained make a decision about whether you have or haven't broken the rules. Anyway, a number of those have done videos on how many laws does Maverick Tom Cruise break in the first Top Gun? The answer is a lot. <laughs> Just to give you two examples, followed by something procedurally terrible in the first movie is he basically says he's going to buzz the tower, fly incredibly close to the tower, which is obviously doing all the sort of the air traffic control. That is a dangerous maneuver. He is told not to, and he does it anyway. That would definitely be taken to court. And the minimum he would expect is to basically be grounded for a few months. But he then does it again, as sort of like later on, as like a almost a victory lap to show how awesome he is. He's now broken the same law twice. He would at least be thrown out of the armed services because you can't trust him and you have to follow orders. That's kind of 101 of the military. OK, so that would be the minimum thing. But also sort of these, these flagrant disobeying of orders on multiple occasions, some of which are during a combat scenario. In other words, the country is basically at war. Sometimes that can actually come with a death penalty. So Maverick is shot at the end of Top Gun. Wouldn't really play very well. The other one, a technical point, is at the end of the first Top Gun, when the mission's been a huge success, everybody goes and hugs each other on the deck of the aircraft carrier. There's whooping and cheering and backslapping and 
sort of swaggering and all this kind of stuff. It's great. It is the perfect way to end the movie. But as pointed out, they've just carried out combat operations. They don't know if the enemy are refueling or sending out more fighters. And at the moment, nobody can get a plane onto the deck of the aircraft carrier because everybody's having a party. They're all going to get busted down to private for basically breaking the most basic procedures on a military vessel. So yeah, just remember that. However, the other thing I mentioned, and look, undeniable, and Tom Cruise has been on record going, looking back on it, we just didn't realize how much this was this, but people have said that it's one of the most unintentionally homoerotic movies of all time. Just look at the volleyball scene. And indeed, there is this wonderful theory that it is a love story, but not between Tom Cruise and Kelly McGillis, but between Tom Cruise and Val Kilmer. And they say some very suggestive things, accidentally suggestive things to each other in the shower room, covered in baby oil with a towel wrapped around their waists. It's very popular with the LGBTQ community. Good for you guys. So that's the first Top Gun. And what's interesting is that Tom Cruise has always been interested in doing his own stunts. But there's absolutely no footage of that movie of an actor in a cockpit in a real aircraft flying around. It's all done on blue screen or green screen. There is real footage of aircraft flying around. Some of it is clearly model work. Some of it's a certain amount of special effects, like the bit where he's inverted over the enemy fighter and takes a photo. Watch the birdie. Those planes are so close, their tails would have hit each other and both of them would have spun out of control and crashed to the, to the ground. Not very good. So, just another fun thing. There, in the first movie, he talks about how he dips below the hard deck just for a few seconds. In military training, you agree where is the ground. You don't want pilots flying right next to the real terra firma, the real ground, because that could be very, very dangerous. So usually for safety reasons, they say, let's set the ground at 1,000 feet. So in other words, if you're flying at 2,000 feet in the simulation, you're actually only flying at 1,000 feet, and it keeps everybody safe. The term for that imaginary line in, in terms of altitude as to where the ground is, is the hard deck. So when Cruz says, I only went below the hard deck for a few seconds, it's a bit like saying, well, I flew into the ground and then came back up again. He's good. He's not that good. So that's why they wanted to fail him on that particular scenario. That's the first one. Huge fun, huge hit, and very influential. There were a number of other movies that sort of like riffed on it. Tom Cruise himself, as I said, be it mixing cocktails, playing snooker, or pool, sorry, or driving fast cars. There are a number of movies where Tom Cruise is the best. But I do want to sort of do a special shout out. Tom Cruise, while he is now a brand in and of himself, and kind of always has been, but back in the 80s, there were a number of people whose names could open movies, and that's it. Whereas now in 2022, as I've mentioned before, you get somebody like Benedict Cumberbatch. He will have big hits with Marvel movies and certain other IPs because of what they are. You're not guaranteed a hundred million opener, regardless of whatever story Benedict Cumberbatch is doing. Or Chris Hemsworth, again, Thor, big hit, not necessarily anything else. Robert Downey Jr., has had some big hits outside of the Iron Man franchise, but the very first movie he did after he, spoiler for Avengers Endgame, dies as Iron Man at the end of that movie, he then does the Doctor Doolittle movie. We've no choice but to embark on this perilous journey. Which was a big flop. Now, technically it was coming out just as COVID was beginning to ramp up, so you could argue that it might have had a bigger release, but even with the numbers that it had, that was doubtful. It was also not a very good movie. 
Tom Cruise, however, can still open movies. Admittedly, they tend to be orientated around Mission Impossible films, which have only got bigger and bigger over time, but he can get attention, be it, I don't know, Oblivion, for example, or War of the Worlds. He can do movies with other directors, other types of films, Collateral with Michael Mann, for example, excellent movie where unusually he plays the bad guy. So he is a movie star. His face on the poster alone will get attention, will get some bottoms on seats to go and see the film. And also, it's worth pointing out that he's Oscar nominated, and quite rightly too. For Born on the Fourth of July, he puts in a remarkable performance there. Don't you know what it means to me to be a Marine, Dad? Ever since I was a kid, I've wanted this. I wanted to serve my country. And there have been a number of movies where he's doing the acting. Magnolia, for example, where he's this kind of motivational speaker very rude motivational speaker, but he's, he's great in that. He's got a sense of humor in Tropic Thunder where he undergoes prosthetics and he's basically fat and balding and the complete opposite of what you'd imagine for Tom Cruise. And he's just this super aggressive, rude producer, Hollywood producer, which is apparently based on a real Hollywood producer. So there we go. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So he's game to have a laugh. He knows how to promote a movie. When the new Top Gun came out, he did this brilliant bit of PR where he basically took a British American chat show host off into an airplane and sort of do some stunts with him. Done the same, this James Corden, by the way, 
He'd done the same thing during the Mission Impossible one where he made him do a parachute jump with him. So that was good fun. So he knows how to sell a movie. He's happy to like sign autographs. He, everyone sort of says he's a good guy. There are other things around him that have led to controversy, etc. But but that's that. However, let's get into Top Gun Maverick. So what's great about it is it does. It's one of these legacy sequels. What do I mean by that? People get back together like 20, 30 years later to try and see if they can capture the magic. They did it with Dumb and Dumber. They did it with Zoolander, for example. And there are a number of examples, and almost all of them don't work. But this absolutely does. Indeed, just flat out, it's an example where the sequel's better than the original, and there aren't many of those that you can say. And one of the key things is, again, we got Cruz wanting to do these stunts, wanting to make it real, wanting to sort of push the boundaries. He would not be happy with just doing Top Gun again. It has to be different. It has to be a reason to sort of like, why are we doing this project? And the critical thing is everything seems to be in camera. I know that there are a few shots that have to be digital. For example, flying through the bridge, there's just no way. That bridge has to be digital. However, and also any of the explosions of aircraft, that's got to be digital work as well. They're not really going to blow up aircraft. But when you see Tom Cruise being thrown around in a cockpit, that's because Tom Cruise is being thrown around in a cockpit. Simple as that. And same with all the other actors. They went through incredibly rigorous training. And for the director, it was a nightmare because basically they could film and control everything up until the time the cockpit went down and they went onto the runway. And after that, it was down to the actors themselves trying to do the, the lines, you know, while they're being thrown around in an airplane and, you know, also making sure that the cameras were switched on as well. And, you know, were they doing the lines right eyesight did they look right in the aircraft was the lighting right all of this was beyond the control so you basically had to wait for an hour for them to land and then say well this this is the what we got and so what you have is something that is super real you're never going to be able to beat the aerial combat scenes of top gun maverick because the aerial combat scenes filmed in hd you're just not going to get better than that i mean you know there may be better movies in the future but it's it's just great indeed at one point you get Rooster. I'm not going to go into the details. This is the thing. The movie is a big, cheesy movie. If I told you that by the end of it, Maverick's alive and, you know, he is successful, you'd go, well, yeah, of course he is. If it was anything else, I would want my money back. That's the point of these sorts of movies. It's, it's the ride. It's the journey. It's the, the, the roller coaster that they deliver. And it just, it's designed to put a big, fat, cheesy grin on your face. Mission accomplished. But as I was saying, the actor who's playing the character, Rooster, he at one point does a maneuver and he sort of like is lifted out of his seat and bangs his helmet against the canopy of the aircraft. That was a complete mistake, but they kept it in the movie because it just sort of heightened the tension. Now, any fighter pilot watching that scene would have gone, he's not the best fighter pilot ever because his straps are too loose. He, sh he shouldn't be flung around in the cockpit like that. He should be almost welded to his seat. But in the words of Tony Scott, I'm not making a movie for fighter pilots. I'm making a movie for moviegoers. And that's the point. There, there has to be this heightened reality. There's a really cool bit in the trailer where you see Tom Cruise and sort of like wrapped around him in close formation are another bunch of fighter planes. It looks awesome. Those planes are too close for a combat operation in terms of sort of like twisting and turning in actual aerial displays. That works fine. And just one other little sort of like trick in both movies is the antagonist faction that they're up against is only ever referred to as the enemy. Now, 
I, like everybody else, assumed it was the Russians. They refer to the planes in the first Top Gun as a MiG-28s. Oh, MiG-28s! No one's been this close before! What the hell are they doing here? By the way, that we all know that MiGs are military aircraft created by the Soviet Union, but what you don't realize is there is no MiG-28. There is a MiG-29, so they deliberately pick a make of MiG that doesn't exist, so we can't say it's definitely Soviet. Also, those are F-5s that they're flying, painted black with a red star on them. Those are American military jets. Of course, in, in the height of the Cold War, you're not going to have Soviet equipment, top-of-the-range fighters available for Hollywood to film on them, particularly if they're going to lose. And so that black paint job makes them look evil. The fact that they got the red star, that's kind of commie, but are they Chinese? Are they Russian? Are they North Korean? Who knows? They're just the enemy. And it's the same this time round as well in Maverick. So it's one of these ones where Tom Cruise has actually developed the character. In the first one, he's a cocky young guy. And in the second one, 30 years has passed. And in the first film, spoiler for, for a movie that's nearly 40 years old, his partner, Goose is actually hurt. His is sort of like not his wingman, but the 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 other person, the person in charge of sort of armaments and things like that, uh, and radio. He actually he dies in the first film, and so you know, thirty years on, you see Maverick sort of still mourning the loss, and and you know there. So there there is a sadness to the older Maverick. And the other thing I'm going to say from the new one is at the beginning he's a test pilot, and it doesn't exactly say where he is, but you can tell because on the joystick of the of this test aircraft that he's trying out which by the way doesn't exist but certainly the tech in it is stuff that absolutely America is playing around with right now because they mentioned scramjets just a little bit of tech here for you scramjets are the next generation of fast aircraft what do i mean by that well normal jet engine can probably get you up to mach 3 mach 4 mach means speed of sound okay so you can go 3 times the speed of sound with a jet engine but scramjets can go much faster. However, they cannot work at normal speeds. So you basically need a jet engine to get you up to something like Mach 2, and then the scramjet can take you up to Mach 7, 8, something like that. Now, in this one, it's going all the way up to Mach 10. Can Maverick get to Mach 10? Well, watch the movie to find out if he can. But on that joystick in that aircraft, you see an image of a skunk and also the brand Lockheed Martin. Lockheed Martin is one of the premier arms manufacturers in the world. Whatever you may think of that, the point is they don't just make guns, they make extremely high-tech equipment, things like cruise missiles and things like highly technical jet fighters. So yes, they're doing test aircraft all the time. And so that comes from Lockheed Martin's advanced development programs nicknamed the Skunk Works, hence why you got the image of the skunk there. And one of the things that was created in that place, it's in California, by the way, which therefore is not very far from the Top Gun Academy, makes complete sense. And one of the things, one of the famous vehicles created by the Skunk Works is the SR-71 Blackbird. That was one of the first semi-stealth aircraft for a long time. I think it might even officially, I'm sure there are unofficial things out there that can break it, is the fastest aircraft ever. It can do a little over Mach 3. Its altitude can go so high that its pilots see the curvature of the Earth and above them there's only black space. That first flew in 1964. It was more of a spaceship than the spaceships that NASA was producing at that time in 64. And it was eventually taken out of service by the US Air Force 
1998 and NASA stopped using them in 1999. So that's 30 five years of service there. An amazing piece of kit from an amazing place where, of course, we don't know exactly what they're developing right now, officially. The truth is out there. So, there we go. Skunk Works, Top Gun, Maverick, everything, lots of stuff going on there. So now let's talk about flight, and we will, like I say, return. We've already mentioned a little bit about certain wars, and we will continue to do so. But one of the things when we start talking about the history of flight is when it comes to humans, there's always like caveats to any record that is broken because flight, picking something up and moving it around, was invented by insects hundreds of millions of years ago. This is before the dinosaurs, therefore nothing to do with us humans. Then you've got things like pterosaurs during the dinosaur era. Obviously, we then get birds. This is all way before human beings and also even us dreaming about going into flight. However, obviously we all know about Icarus and Daedalus. That's an ancient Greek myth that goes back you know, about 3,000 years. And obviously humans have always looked up into the sky and there's been sort of daydreaming of, oh, I wish I was free as a bird or something like that. So, you know, it doesn't matter which culture we're talking about. The idea of flight is associated with deities quite often. It's obviously seen as something powerful and sometimes sort of some demigod-type humans are claimed to have flight or power or whatever. It might be even from the tales of monkey, which are actually Renaissance-era from China, the monkey god, and he flies around on a cloud, and, and so on and so forth. So, in terms of when was the first time human beings got up into the air, practically, there seems to have been very large kites used by China, and the absolute latest those were being used was the 900s AD. So there we go, that's the first time human beings are up off the air. Obviously there's a lot of caveats there, there's no engine, you can't necessarily control the direction you're going, and you are still tethered to the ground because that's how a kite works. And they were sort of used for like a military observation. Very clever. Now we have to skip nearly a thousand years to the Montgolfier brothers in France. This is in the late 1700s and basically they create the hot air balloon. And this is an amazing sensation, and this is all happening just before the French Revolution. But again, can't really go in any specific direction. You're not gonna stay up in the air for very long because they weren't using helium or hydrogen. They were just sort of heating up air, and so you're gonna come down fairly quickly. Then we come to 1903, and Orville and Wilbur Wright, the Wright brothers in America, but, you know, they didn't invent flight. They did invent aeroplanes. They invented what I think is technically heavier than air fixed wing flight. Ah, for the days when aviation was a gentleman's pursuit. Because, like I said, all the other versions of flight had already been invented. Now, if you're wondering, hang on, Jem, you skipped past Leonardo da Vinci. He invented a flying machine. No, he did a little scribble in a margin of something that could have been a, a flying machine. People have tried building it. It doesn't fly because, of course, it doesn't. He doesn't understand aerodynamics because that's just beyond his capabilities at the time. And also using things like wood, it's just simply too heavy. And no matter how hard you pedal, a human being is not going to create enough lift for something like that to work. So it's a curiosity, move on. So 1903, we get the Wright brothers. And yet less than 10 years later, we have aircraft being used in the Italian invasion of North Africa. This was a forgotten war a few years before World War I between Italy and the Ottoman Empire, where we have a record from an Italian pilot 
all the planes, the few planes that were being used at that time, were again being used as spotter aircraft. There was no radios on board, so they had to fly up into the air. Oh, look, there's a bunch of enemy in the desert. Fly back down, go and tell somebody. It wasn't very practical, but it was at least a start. And obviously the great thing about the deserts of North Africa is it was hard to hide in them, so quite useful for spotter planes. But this particular individual actually put in his diary, tomorrow I will drop grenades as I fly over the enemy. So in other words, that's the first case of air-to-ground bombardment. Not a lot, but that's where we start with the idea of aircraft attacking the ground, which is happening at time of recording right now in Ukraine and happened hugely in World War One. It started in World War One fairly big. World War Two, it gets to a whole other level. But then in Vietnam, it gets even bigger than World War Two. So what's amazing is, you know, when we talk about World War One, I've never mentioned this in the past about the innovation and lack thereof of World War One. It's like I'm sorry, but aircraft were invented 11 years ago, and now you're integrating them into the military. That's novel. There had never been an aircraft in the Victorian era because they didn't exist. Every country basically had an army and a navy, and now there's the Royal Flying Corps, later on the RAF. They're the first ones to actually be turned into a force. America wasn't far behind, as was the rest of the world. But the point is, this is a completely new way of carrying out warfare. And throughout the war, there's huge innovations. The high point being the German Gotha heavy bomber, where 20 of these things flew over London, dropping bombs, killing dozens, wounding hundreds, you know, civilians. It's obviously you know, a terrible attack. But they could fly so high and so fast that the RAF, the Home Guard aircraft, only managed to shoot down one of them because you'd think that, well, these big, huge bombers, they'd be slow, but they were actually more efficient, more deadly than the fighter planes, which is an amazing thing to say. Obviously, the other thing that the Germans did in World War I was send over Zeppelins, huge hydrogen-filled aircraft to bomb places like Paris and London. Hundreds died from aerial bombardment, civilians. First time ever that has happened in history in World War I, and is a snapshot of, yes, actually there was a huge amount of innovation in World War I when it comes to technology, most notably in the sky. That's World War I. Then we move on to World War II, where what's interesting is we have the Bismarck. This is a pocket battleship, German, that was causing real problems to North Atlantic fleet. It destroyed the HMS Hood before it even could see the Bismarck, but also it could attack North Atlantic shipping as well. It was a real threat. But what basically took it down wasn't some incredible high tech, but it was a, a swordfish. The swordfish was a biplane. It was little more than an engine, two wings, and a bag of laundry, basically. It was canvas, and there was a guy sitting on it, and it had one weapon and one weapon only. Along the whole of its body length, it had a torpedo. And just one of these almost World War I-era machines dropped its torpedo, took out the Bismarck steering, so now the Bismarck could only go round and round in circles, which meant it was now a sitting duck for both other aircraft and also the, the Royal Navy. And so the Bismarck, which was thought basically to be almost unstoppable, was stopped with remarkable ease with a very low-tech weapon. And what we see in World War II is whereas navies for the last 200 years were seen as sort of preeminent powers were now being flattened by aircraft. You get the Battle of Midway. It's near literally the island of Midway, but it's also about midway through World War II. And it's about midway through the campaign between Japan and America, where before Midway, Japan largely won and won pretty big. After Midway, Japan only lost, really. 
And America pretty much won every conflict in the Pacific after that. So it's sort of midway in a number of different valid points. There was even a movie that came out in 2019 that was about the Battle of Midway that was terrible. And there's a very good 1970s movie about the Battle of Midway, which is far superior. The point about it is that this was the first time in history that the two opposing navies, the ships, never saw each other. It was all carried out through aircraft attacking each other. It was a close-run thing. The Japanese basically had some bad luck. There wasn't really anything they did fundamentally wrong, but it just happened to be they made the wrong choices at the wrong time, which led to an American victory. Well done them. So at the beginning of World War II, you get the swordfish, which is uh, basically a viable option just about in this war. And yet by the end of World War II, you've got Germany actually putting into operation both rocket-powered and jet-powered aircraft to fight in the war. Now, by then, the tide had turned too, too strongly that they were never going to win with just a, a few of these fighter planes. But it does show you that we've gone from something which would have been recognisable to the Wright brothers all the way up to something that's now starting to head to the speed of sound with higher altitudes and things like that. Now, actually, for the record, the jet engine was invented by Frank Whittle. He's a British guy. The RAF managed to see it just before World War II and decided it just wasn't their thing. Ugh, come on, guys. So it's not a German invention. It's not an American invention. It's actually a British invention. And indeed, by the end of World War II, the Allies also had jet aircraft as well. They were just coming into service right at the tail end of the Second World War. Interestingly, by the time we go to Korea, which is 1950 to 1953, there still are a few propeller aircraft fighter planes, but now the vast majority of jets fighters. And once we get to Vietnam, there are still a few propeller spotter planes. I mean, to this day, you get something like the Hercules air transport aircraft that is propeller driven. So jet aircraft aren't used in every single occasion, but certainly if we're talking about combat, jet aircraft are absolutely the way to go. The most notable recent-ish version of, of air combat was actually in the Falklands conflict, which was 40 years ago this year, 1982, where basically you had supersonic aircraft capable of going over the speed of sound. You basically had Argentinian supersonic aircraft that were actually French-made versus the Harrier jump jets. These were the first aircraft that could vertically take off like a helicopter. But the thing about the Harriers, while they were incredibly maneuverable, and able to take off vertically, which gave them a, a def definitely an advantage, they couldn't fly supersonic. So there was a big interest by the whole world's militaries, which would do better. And the answer was the Harrier jump jets by a country mile. They managed to see off all the Argentinian air force, get more kills in the air than the Argentinians. There's the famous quote, I can't tell you how many planes there are, but I counted them all out and I counted them all back again. In other words, they managed to all survive, well done them, after one battle, one encounter with the Argentinian. I'm not allowed to say how many planes joined the raid, but I counted them all out, and I counted them all back. Their pilots were unhurt, cheerful, and jubilant, giving thumbs-up signs. So there's an example of how there's another further development, this vertical takeoff. Nowadays, America and other allied nations have the F-35 Raptor. That is the first aircraft that can both take off vertically and also fly supersonic as well. So there is this amazing innovation. It was, I mean, to give you an idea, 
it was about 75 years from the time the Wright brothers took off to the first test flight of the space shuttle, which should be the ultimate in aircraft, basically, the one that can go literally into space. So that shows you how fast and rapid the development of aircraft is. And of course, nowadays, and this is a bit in, in Top Gun Maverick, there is the debate about do we even need fighter pilots anymore? With the advent of drones, and again in Ukraine, you can see the versatility of drones. They can attack ground units without any human being being harmed on the Allied side because there's no human beings around. Whereas, you know, 20 years ago, you, that would have to be a fighter pilot flying over Russian forces, dropping actual missiles or bombs, and they could well be shot down. So the great thing about drones is your, your pilots aren't put in harm's way anymore. But, you know, there is this element of... Well, if we literally turn them into a robot with an AI, bad things could happen there. That sounds like the start of a sci-fi movie. But at the same time, it's also, you know, the, actually having a human there, they can just sort of see things, be aware of the situation better than a computer. But as they go faster, as more Gs are being pulled. So if you suddenly stop hard, you always feel heavier because G-force is being added to you. Again, a key part in Maverick is they show you how there's a limit to this stuff for human beings, which a drone won't necessarily have. So, yeah, exactly what will happen in the next 75 years, who can say? Maybe they are an endangered species, fighter pilots. But bottom line, Top Gun Maverick, what a fun film. If you don't see, if you end up watching it on an iPhone and you go, what's the fuss? You're watching it wrong. You need to see it in a cinema. You need to hear the roar of the engines. You need to sort of have your face filled with the screen, You're almost getting vertigo watching these people being thrown around. Those actors suffered. As they said, you can't fake those G pulls. And therefore, when you see them being thrown around in the cockpits, that's because they really are being thrown around in an airplane. Obviously, the actual flying outside is done by professional pilots, and some of it is just nail-biting terrifying. But even Tom Cruise with James Corden, you can see he, he's an amazing pilot doing some pretty scary stuff as well. So for everybody, look, is this the most nuanced and subtle movie ever made? No. Is it a look at the human condition? Uh-uh. But is it something that's going to put a big, fat, cheesy grin on your face that's going to make you forget about the world for two hours and just put you in a good mood? Absolutely. And for that reason, I would give it five stars. Thank you very much for listening. And as always, another podcast soon. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.